uh, before. In 79, we saw twin rebellions against materialism, uh, the Pope John Paul II rebelling against Soviet materialism, and the Ayatollah Khomeini rebelling against American consumerist, whatever, however you want to describe it, that kind of materialism. And what the British tried to do before World War One was keep Russia and Germany from uh, aligning together, play them off against each other. The United States foreign policy has failed miserably because they have united the Eurasian landmass. Once you do that, you have to run up the white flag and admit defeat. That's what we're going to have to do here. Syria, they're going to lose Syria. It's the only question is, how is this empire going to come down? Are, we going, are the grown-ups going to step in? Are we going to have an orderly retreat? Or is it going to be some type of nuclear catastrophe? That's the question. And we're going to talk about the new, new world order, which is basically on the firm metaphysical foundation of Logos. It's not American capitalism. It's not social engineering. It's not pie in the sky. It's bedrock reality. Logos is going to triumph. What else can no evil can no evil can impede the triumph of Logos because no evil has the power of God and God is Logos. Logos is God. St. John said that. That's what we believe. This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Our guest tonight is Dr. E. Michael Jones. He's the longtime editor of Culture Wars magazine. He's the author of over a dozen books, some of them nearly 1,500 pages long. Uh, let me give you the names of a few of those. Libido Dominandi, which is Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. And The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History. Uh, from those titles, you can tell Dr. Jones is willing to take on the biggest powers in our society. He is self-described as a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. <laughs> um, I'm a great admirer of uh, Dr. Jones. He also goes by Mike. Uh, uh, I admire him for his courage and his fearlessness and also his uh, obvious intellect and his prolific writing. Uh, he earned his doctorate from Temple University. He resides in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, so you already told me uh, off the air that you go by Mike or Dr. Jones, um, and uh, this is kind of corny, but do you ever get Indiana Jones? Sometimes I feel like Indiana Jones. <laughs> I wondered if that was, I was coming. I was, I was just, I, I was just in uh, Musoma in uh, in Tanzania, and we landed there, and it's a dirt airport with a propeller plane. So it reminded me. It's right on the shores of uh, Lake Victoria. Well, you should feel like Indiana Jones, and uh, I'm sure. Uh, at least uh, in the intellectual world, your your rough and ready life has been somewhat like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I can't, I'm always getting beaten up, too. So Yeah, that's, I, that's what I'm that's thinking. And you're in that ass-kicking contest with one leg, so <laughs> it, that would make it difficult. Um, all right. Let's hope the, if we have some technological glitches, we'll uh, switch to audio. We already talked about that. But uh, uh, moving forward... Um, so to talk about uh, the topic we're going to talk about tonight, uh, you can tell from the book titles that we could go a number of different ways. And uh, Mike is very uh, able to talk about all sorts of things. 
what's happening in Syria, why does the U.S. hate Iran. Uh, we could talk about how civilization moved from no usury at all to being a completely usury uh, uh, undergirded system. Uh, we could talk about the root of America becoming so sexually debauched over the last 50 years. We could talk about how uh, the Jews in Hollywood beat the organized Catholic attempts to ban obscenity. There's a lot of specific topics, and we might go there. But the overarching top topic that I, I wanted to lead with, um, uh, or at least get to, uh, you can lead with something specific if you'd like, is is uh, the subject of logos. Logos versus anti-logos. Uh, and I'm about halfway through your book on Islam. He, he refers to Islam as being a logos, no logos. He refers, uh, I'll let him get to um, the the Judaistic tradition being anti-logos. And of course, uh, from First John, uh, from uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1, we know that uh, Christ is the Logos, and you can talk about that. But that's where I wanted you to start, is just, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, evaluate the world's religions, uh, the world's yeah. systems, Christianity, Judaism, Judaism Islam, basically uh, explain the whole world in a few minutes. There you go. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, the man who came up with the idea that there was an overarching system to the universe, uh, which he called Logos, uh, was Anaxagoras, who was a little bit before uh, the golden age of uh, Greek philosophy. And the, the idea is, it's, 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 it's difficult to talk about this unless you use the Greek word. And the best example of this is the Gospel of St. John. We're all familiar with the beginning of the Gospel of St. John. It says in the beginning there, there, were, there was the Word, and the Word was God. What does that mean? Well, Logos is, the Greeks understood that one of the essential parts of Logos is speech. And one of the things that distinguishes man from all of the other animals is his ability to use speech. Uh, and speech, they chose the word, word instead of speech. But speech is just the beginning of something that just kind of radiates out from there. And so if you go to the, uh, uh, the uh, Liddell Scott Greek Dictionary, Greek English Dictionary, you'll find five pages of translations, five pages of definitions of Logos, five pages of words that you need in English to sort of come up with some type of approximation of what the Greeks understood by Logos. So it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big invention. And that is the beginning of, of mankind becoming conscious, conscious of who he is. That he's a, a rational creature and that he has a duty to be rational. That is his being, that's his destiny, that's who he is. And anytime he, he negates that in one way or the other, it always has a bad end. And so we have, of course, the Greeks lived in a fallen world. And oftentimes they knew what they were supposed to do and they couldn't do it. They were subverted by their own uh, passions. So if you take Greek tragedy, you've got a good example of people who uh, knew what was right and just couldn't do it, didn't have the power to do it. Uh, Euripides is especially important in this regard. Uh, Hippolytus is the story of a man who just said, you know, Hippo means horse, Luo means to untie the horse or to be undone by a horse, murdered by a horse. And that pun is the basis of the whole play. He's a man who brags about being in control of his passions. Uh, and the horse symbolizes passion and the rider symbolizes reason. So he's the classic Greek man and he gets undone by his passions 
because not so much out of his own doing, because he offends the goddess of love after he spurns the advances of his father's uh, young wife. In in the Bacchae, uh, Pentheus is the king of Thebes, responsible for the social order there. And uh, suddenly Dionysus shows up, and the god of uh, wine and and sexual excess, and the women leave their looms and start dancing naked on the mountainside. And so he, because he's responsible for social order, he has Dionysus apprehended, and uh, he's interviewing him, he's interrogating him, and uh, he says, you're my prisoner, and Dionysus says, no, you're my prisoner, and he says, what do you mean by that? And he says, would you like to see the women dancing naked on the mountainside? Well, yeah, he would. <laughs> and it, you can see here a man being uh, uh, who knows what's right, knows what he has to do, and yet is undone by his own unruly passions. He couldn't control them, so he ends up going. Uh, he has to put on a dress, so he loses all his authority by dressing like a woman. He goes up to the mountainside to see the naked women because all men, uh, most men, like to look at naked women. Dionysus says, you get a better view if you climb a tree. So he climbs the tree, and uh, the women see him, and they drag him down, tear him limb from limb. And the end of the play is Agave, his mother, waking up with her, the head of her son on her lap. And she's still full of the Dionysian intoxication. Now, is this 1990 or 2010? As a joke. This is... This is uh, 300, 300 years before Christ. It sounds very modern. That's my point. Well, that's because we, we, we had to go through this. Ben Franklin said, experience keeps an expensive school and fools will learn in no other. And that's precisely what America did during the 1960s. Uh, there was a, a crazy German who put on a play called Dionysus 69, which was a sort of replay of the Bacchae, but all the women are dancing naked in the theater. This is precisely what Euripides was warning you against. Don't do this. And so we have to learn again in the expensive school of experience in the 1960s. So that was the beginning of Logos and also the understanding that uh, you knew what it was and you knew that it was your destiny, but somehow you couldn't fulfill it. And that's the essence of Greek tragedy. And of course, that changed. Of course, uh, Plato, Socrates, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were the golden age of Logos in Greece. And then it died. It just died. I mean, they knew what it was. And then what followed was a, a long centuries of decline. And by the end of the, the, the trajectory, when they finally closed the Platonic Academy in the sixth century, uh, Logos was just degenerated into magic. But what happened in the meantime is that Christianity took over logos and christianity became the vehicle for logos and that happened when as pope benedict pointed out when saint john wrote the gospel in greek we we underestimate because we're so ignorant of languages how the languages influence our thought and this is the classic instance of the the saint john writing in greek the first sentence as i said of the gospel of saint john is in the beginning, there was the word. Well, what we really should say is in the beginning, there was logos. In other words, there was never a time when the universe wasn't an orderly place, when it didn't have a definite purpose, 
when there it wasn't part of a plan. There was never a time when that was the, was the case. And the second sentence is, and Logos is God. And that, in a sense, follows from the first statement. Because if it's at the beginning, it has to be God. There's no other. This is we know this because of the proofs for the existence of God. I was in I was in India uh, speaking, uh, and I was at a high school in uh, Delhi, nice uh, Catholic high school, but most of the students were Hindu. And I gave a little talk, and then the Hindu boy said to me, "Can you prove the existence of God?" I said, "Yes. As a matter of fact, I can. You you got the right guy here." And I said. Nothing comes from nothing. There is something. Therefore, there was never nothing. This something could not bring itself into existence because it would have to exist before it existed. And that's impossible. So therefore, something else had to bring it into existence. And that something is God, what all men call God. That's the proof for the existence of God. Well, he was, you know, taken aback because I actually did it. And and the reason he's asking the question is because this Logos, this level of Logos never penetrated to India, never got there. They never, they, you know, every, first of all, I have to say every group of people has Logos because a group of people have always has a language to communicate with each other. There's no people on the face of the earth that doesn't have Logos in this regard. But it goes to a certain level, and then it seems to stop in various places throughout the world. You know, uh, Tanzania, uh, the Yanomami in the Amazon rain basin, they all have their languages, but their d- development stopped at a certain point. The Indians had a much higher level of culture, and it's an ancient, ancient civilization, but it stopped. And it never got to the point where it could un- become conscious of Logos in this sense, in the metaphysical sense. And so the, the symbol of Indian cosmology is there's basically a, a semicircle, like half an orange. And that's the world. And it's sitting on the back of an elephant. And the elephant is standing on a turtle. And the next question is, What's the turtle standing on? Because that's not in the picture. And the answer is, some wise guy in England says, the answer is, it's turtles all the way down. Well, it can't be turtles all the way down. There has to be something that doesn't move. And if it's turtle, you can have an infinite number of turtles. And if one of the turtles isn't a turtle, in other words, something that's unmoved, the unmoved mover and the uncaused cause, none of those turtles are going to support the elephant and the elephant can't support the world. They never reached that far in India. The Greeks did, uh, Aristotle did, and the, the, the Christians, Christianity took over Logos. And there was this marriage of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and Greek philosophy. And this was the, created the powerhouse known as Christianity. And now we had, the the result of this was a, a, a totally new understanding of Logos. Because up to this point, if you look at the Greeks, Logos is static. It's, it's, it's like geometry, you know? Geometry is static. 
what happened after the, the Christianity, specifically with St. Augustine, specifically with the city of God, is that Logos became dynamic. History, time got included in Logos for the first time. Now, Aristotle said time was the number of motion, and that's basically the same idea that Isaac Newton had in all of these Unitarian science, science guys. That's not what history is. History is fecund. History is the unfolding of a plan in time. This is something completely new. History has a purpose now. Uh, Augustine said that history was always a contest between the city of God and the city of man. The city of God is based on love of God to the extinction of self, and the city of man is based on love of self to the extinction of God. And these two cities are at war with each other, and they will be at war with each other for all of human history, which will end up with a good end, because God is the author of time, and God is the author of history. And so now I think this is, you have this dynamic era, and now I think, paradoxically, the, the evil empire, namely the United States, is spreading this idea throughout the world. This is what Hegel, Hegel, I think, uh, is, uh, would understand what I'm talking about here. Hegel tried to take the understanding of Augustine to a, a, a higher level of consciousness, and I, I think to a large extent he succeeded. But I think in, in many ways all Hegel is doing, ultimately, is uh, talking about divine providence. He calls it Vernunft, which is the German word for Logos or reason. But he, he talks about how this power is propelling uh, human history. And so it has to have a good end. This is the optimism that Christianity brings with it because God is the author of history. And God knows the whole thing. Now, it's all I, over God. I'd like to break in here and, and tell me if I'm derailing you, but let's move up to the current and say... Okay, there's a lot going on in our world right now, especially in the United States, that doesn't seem to be logos, seems to be rather irrational, seems to be rather chaotic and crazy. Uh, our culture has gone nuts. So uh, if, if it works, go ahead and, and take where we are now and, and how did we become so anti-logos? You're absolutely right. As soon as I say, say what I said, you, you're absolutely right to raise an objection. And the, the, the objection to what I said is the existence of evil in the world. How can, if God is in charge, how can you explain evil? Okay, you're absolutely right. That is the first objection to what I said. The answer to this is in the Bible. Uh, Hegel had a, a, a principle, an idea, which he called der List der Vernunft which gets translated into the cunning of reason. In other words, reason is a person. You get the sense very clearly, reason is a person. Reason is God. It's exactly what St. John said. Logos is God. God is Logos. Reason is a person. And reason has its ends, and there are people who are irrational. You're absolutely right. They do evil, which is irrational. And uh, how do you, how do you, these two these things fit together? Well, the evil uh, propels the good. Because, and the best way to understand this is the story from the Bible, the story of Joseph and his brothers from the Bible. 
you know the story. Joseph is the favorite son. The brothers are jealous. The father gives him a, 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 a colored coat. Uh, he's walking by. The, 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 the brothers are so jealous they want to kill him. So they plot. And then some of the brothers said, don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So they, he ends up in Egypt. And he's such a bright guy. He rises in the bureaucracy and he ends up being the Pharaoh's right-hand man. At this point, famine breaks out in Israel and they're starving to death. And so the brothers have to come to Egypt for grain. Well, it turns out that Joseph is the, in charge of the granary. And suddenly, after a whole period of, of uh, hesitation, he finally reveals who he is. And then he says, this is the sentence, the crucial sentence. The evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. That is the story of human history. In other words, God used their evil actions and turned them into good. So let's jump ahead to the present. We have a, 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 the, 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 the evil empire, the United States, with its wicked designs, trying to control the entire world, and a lady by the tame, by the by the name of Victoria Newland, it has a high position in the State Department, and she spends $5 billion to destabilize the Ukraine, causes, uh, orchestrates a color revolution there. Uh, lots of people die. Uh, she is a hangover. She's the wife of Robert Kagan. She's this Jewish lady who is a part of the whole neoconservative cabal that got us into Iraq. And here, all of us thought we voted for Obama to get rid of these people. And there they are spreading the same evil that they did before. Well, what was the outcome? Now, I'm not trying to deny that what she did was evil. There are people di who died as a result of that. This still is not resolved. It looks as if it's leading to World War III, which will be a war with nuclear weapons with Russia, which I hope doesn't come about. Uh, but the, the, the net result of what she did was the Crimea going back to Russia. Well, I'm sure she didn't intend that. And, and the State Department was outraged when this happened. And now they're talking about Russia, you know, uh, annexing the Crimea. It's like saying the United States annexed Texas or something like that. This is preposterous. But I think this is the way uh, Logos works in history. So I think that the, the United States as the empire of chaos keeps spreading chaos. And the more they spread chaos, the more the entire human race has this desire for Logos, which is the opposite of chaos. And I think that is precisely what's driving world history right now. What is, uh, wh what is driving the anti-Logos, uh, in terms of sexual morality, the, uh, uh, sexual revolution that we've seen the last 50 to 100 years well to go to go to get to that you have to deal with the jews because the jews are behind uh the sexual revolution there's just no way to get around it the jews uh gave us gay marriage now if you say that they will call you an anti-semite but amy dean said it in tikkun magazine which is a jewish magazine and she bragged about it so it's true. Joe Biden said it. He was uh, that became an embarrassment to Joe Biden. But uh, when he says it, it's OK. If you say the Jews are behind gay marriage, uh, they'll call you an anti-Semite. But that is simply the case. So the question is, why are they? Why is it that they are behind sexual liberation? Uh, virtually every subversive movement in European history. 
this is obvious. This is the text. This is not just me just blowing smoke. This is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. I'm talking about the thesis of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Which is the book that you wrote in 2008, I guess? Nine, I believe it was. Okay. But, but yeah, so it's a long book, but it's all of the history of the conflict between Jews and Christians in Europe. Okay, so when did it begin? Well, it began at the foot of the cross. The Jews uh, were told that God would send a Messiah who would save them. Well, suddenly the guy who was claiming to be the Messiah is there. He's arrived. And now they've got to decide, uh, do we accept him or not? Because God is not going to coerce your free will. You have to accept him. And more than that, you have to accept him on his terms, not your terms. And that's where the problem started to arise, because the Jews did not want someone like Jesus. They wanted a mighty warrior who would restore the kingdom of Israel and conquer all their enemies and make them the uh, the top, the elite, uh, the oligarchs ruling the entire world. That's not what Jesus Christ was about. And so it came to a conflict between the Jews who started bragging about their DNA. This is the beginning of racism. And Jesus, who's telling them, look, I don't, God doesn't care about your DNA. God can turn, create people out of rocks. He doesn't need your DNA. And so then the conflict escalates. This is all in the Gospel of St. John. And then Jesus finally says, your father is Satan. Well, the Jews didn't like that. And they, they, they don't like it when you, when you criticize them. Still true today. And they pick up rocks and they threaten to kill you. And so he escaped for a while, but then they eventually killed him. Well, okay, you killed the Messiah. That's bad. You kill anybody, it's bad. You murder anybody, that's bad. But you killed your own Messiah. That's even worse. But the worst thing here is you killed the Logos incarnate. So you're at war with Logos. And that's your identity now. This always happened when they called out, crucify him. And then they chose Barabbas. What was Barabbas? He was a revolutionary. And so the Jews adopted this new identity at the foot of the cross. They became revolutionaries at war with Logos. And that is what they are up to this day. So you name it, you name the, the revolution, they were involved in it. This is not my statement. This is the statement of Rabbi Louis Israel Newman. The only difference is that he called them progressive movements. You know, we call them Christians, call them revolutions. But that's that's what it was. So 70, uh, the, the Jews finally rise up in rebellion. Rome crushes the rebellion and destroys the temple. There's no Jewish religion at this point. They have to create something new. And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai cr creates this new religion, newer than Christianity, called the synagogue. And the book that they read in the synagogue is called the Talmud, and the Talmud is basically anti-Christian propaganda. It's not the word of God. Even the Jews won't claim that it's the word of God. The Torah is the word of God. The Talmud is the word of man. Uh, men specifically in rebellion against the word of God. That's what it came down to. And that's what the Jews have been ever since, and that's what they are today. They are at war with Logos. You name it, that's what they're doing. So it can be uh, the, what we experienced in the 60s, uh, the sexual revolution. The Jews were behind that. The Jews in Hollywood uh, were certainly behind it. The Catholics fought with the Jews in Hollywood. 
uh, and won the battle against obscenity in the 1930s. For 31 years, the Catholics held the Jews under, uh, held them in check. And then in 65, the Jews broke the code and no one has been able to stop them since, certainly not the Catholic Church. So it became uh, uh, pornography is a Jewish operation. Everybody knows that. You know, if you say it, they'll call you an anti-Semite. But if you Google it, Jews and pornography, there are all these websites just saying, yeah, it's it's a Jewish operation. Uh, Al Goldstein, the late Al Goldstein, who was a pornographer, uh, editor of Screw magazine, said, yeah, we, we Jews uh, do pornography and we're proud of it. And we do it because Christ sucks. This is Al Goldstein and his, his famous image is there, him giving you the finger. Well, the Jews have been giving us all the finger for a long time. And as a result, we are in a, some sense or other a conquered nation. Like Dian, like Pentheus in the Bacchae, we have been subverted by our own passions. Uh, that's what the sexual revolution was. It was basically exploiting, breaking down the, the system of laws and customs that kept sexuality private and within the family and opening the economic exploitation but also the use of sexual liberation as a form of political control, which is what it is today. And that's the gist of my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, uh, Sexual Liberation and Political. Let me ask you a couple questions. Um, this uh, sort of uh, wandering Jew kind of concept you're talking about or uh, you know, straying away from the logos or having a negative identity, uh, is, that, um, is that something that's discussed uh, or are you aware of that's discussed within Judaism itself? Or are they sort of, do they have a, a consciousness of not sort of having a, 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 a unifying kind of theory of life and they're, and they're sort of scattered here and there and always reacting and, and, and counter-reacting, that sort of thing? Or is that not really um, something that they think about? The, Jew, the Jews know they have no temple, they have no priesthood, and they have no sacrifice. They know this. And they try to come up with some type of uh, justification for this fact and saying that it doesn't matter. So a good example would be, uh, of all people, Jacques Derrida, Jew from uh, northern Africa, who uh, was the, 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 all the craze in literary criticism during the 1970s. He has this weird description of how uh, there's, there's nothing there. If you look at, if you go uh, 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 to discourse and you get to the root of it is empty. Well, what is he talking about? He's a Jew. He's talking about the temple. The temple's not there. And so there's nothing there. There's no presence. This is a metaphysics of absence, which is a complete contradiction in terms. But the Jews took over uh, literary criticism at that point in the 1970s. I was there when it happened. I was in graduate school as it was happening. I had a front row seat. I was a student of Stanley Fish. And uh, that's what they've done. And now that they've they've wrecked academe, now they're all that Derrida's dead, Fish is retired, but now they've put this kind of intellectual roadblock in the in the place in place of uh, at the university, and so the university is now a a a, 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 a propo proponent of anti logos because they took over in the seventies. Okay, let me ask you this question. I'm sure you get this one a lot, but um, you know, the, probably the average listener on this podcast is, uh, you know, they, they haven't met the guy who runs Screw Magazine, and they haven't re met one of the magnates in Hollywood, and they haven't met, you know, various people that are 
heavily involved in inner circles of Judaism where there's a, a, a very strong anti-logo sentiment. They just know, they've met a couple of Jews here and there, pretty nice people. Some of them are trying to live a moral life. Um, so how do you, how do you kind of uh, spit out the bones and eat the fish here? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm talking about the Jewish people. And the Jewish people does not mean all Jews. It's a distinction. Like I can say the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Does that mean every Japanese person was involved in the bombing of Pearl Harbor? No. Does it mean that the statement is meaningless? No, it doesn't mean the statement is meaningless because groups have uh, uh, leaders and the leaders mobilize the group and the group has a certain identity. I'm saying you can identify this, uh, uh, the Jewish identity uh, and as, as rebellion against Logos. So a comedian uh, like, uh, I think it's her name, Sarah Silverman, she said, yeah, we killed Christ and I'd do it again if I had the chance. Now, that is the type of rejection of Logos that is perdured through 2,000 years, transmitted by the Jewish people, by the leaders of the Jewish people. She's part of that deal. And the rejection of, that, that, uh, the rejection of Logos has perdured to that day. Now, there, there, are, there, there is a, a movement here and there uh, of conservative Judaism, of Jews pushing for morality, even, even uh, some of the conservative issues in the culture war. Is there not, or is it such a small voice that you don't think it there, there, there are Jews. First of all, there are all kinds of Jews who believe all kinds of different things, and I've, I've met a lot of them. I have Jewish supporters. I have Jews who support me who feel that the best thing that, the, the best thing that could happen for the Jews is to uh, have them uh, follow the leadership of the Catholic Church. There are Jews uh, 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 who, who think that uh, the Chivilta Catholica series on, uh, in, uh, published in 1890 on the Jewish question is the best description of the situation today. There are Jews who are completely convinced and they become Catholics. There, there are Jews who have read my books and have become Catholics. So we're talking about all different gradations here. Because so what, we're, and what, we're, uh, all, we're all creatures of Logos. So for, have, if, if you want to we, talk about the United States, you can look at uh, laws passed by the Congress. You can talk about speeches uh, by the presidents, etc., in order to get a sense of what the overriding uh, you know, beliefs and, and movement is, identity of, of the USA. Where do you go to do that for Judaism, for Jews? The, 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 the major Jewish organizations, that is the the current day Sanhedrin. There has been, in other words, an organization that controls Jews and keeps Jews in line. And it exists to this day. Uh, these people, not only do they do that, there is an Israel lobby which controls the United States Congress. Everybody knows that. So who are you talking about besides APAC and ADL? Uh, the AJC, B'nai uh, B'rith, uh, the ADL, all the, the WJC, all these Jewish organizations, they all get together and they basically determine the policy for the Jewish people. Okay, okay? fair enough. And the Jews, the, Jews the, the big Jews tell the little Jews what to do. And maybe the little Jew doesn't like it, but basically that's uh, most of the Jews are controlled. That's why they're Jews. Okay, to say that they, they don't exist as an organization is preposterous. But people make this preposterous claim all the time. All the time, Germans are especially phobic here. When you try and talk to uh, to a German, you say, "Well, yeah," he'll say, "Yeah, well, yeah, it's right to say the Jews. Uh, I mean, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that." 
Well, how about the Jews killed Christ? Well, no, you can't say that. Well, why can't you say that? Well, because there's no such thing as the Jews. Well, I said, well, wait a minute. Germany pays reparations every year for what happened during the World War II. Uh, where does that money go if there are no Jews? There must be someone out there who's willing to take the money. And of course, Norman Finkelstein has written a book about this. He's a Jew. Uh, he's obviously not happy with the direction the Jewish leadership has taken his, his particular group. He wrote a book called The Holocaust Industry, which talks about how these people basically shake down governments like Germany for reparations payments. And that doesn't go to the little Jew either. His parents were in a concentration camp. They got nothing. So this is the, the kind of scam. If you want another uh, example of it, contemporary example, uh, the Coen brothers did a really good movie on this topic, and it's called uh, A Serious Man. Yeah, I saw that. It's a very good movie. I mean, it makes you Zeus look like, uh, you know, Fiddler on the Roof. It's the most anti-Jewish movie I've ever seen, uh, and it's a Hollywood movie. And there they are. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Jews. The rabbi is basically the, 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 the prison warden for the, for the little Jews. You know, and if it's not the rabbi, it's something like the rabbi. You know, it's it's uh, whoever's running the ADL or any of these operations. So that's the situation. Lots of Jews are unhappy, but there's still this group of people that can be mobilized. And they have basically taken over our Congress. They control the media uh, 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 and uh, they control uh, our foreign policy. OK, now let's take a switch turn. Thank you very much. Uh Let's switch over to Islam. You've re written a recent book on that, and you talk very specifically about uh, uh, logos in Islam or the lack thereof. There's been attempts to move towards logos. There's been moves away from it. Maybe uh, currently there's been some a uh, little bit of revival of logos within Islam. Yes, yes. So, so talk that's about a, that. Yeah, that's a really important topic. So the difference is that the Jews are anti-logos, okay? But this is not the attitude of the Muslims. The Muslims, uh, the Arabs, they had Aristotle before the Christians did. They had it 200 years before the Christians did. And they were studying it only because of the Arabs, uh, their transmission of these manuscripts that the Christian West got people like Aristotle. But when they got Aristotle, there was a challenge. Uh, and Ibn Rushd is the philosopher who faced this challenge. Aristotle said that the world was eternal. The Quran said that it was um, created in time. And Ibn Rushd could not resolve this contradiction. Now you can say, well, the, uh, maybe the Logos of Islam wasn't really strong enough to do this. I mean, Islam was a stripped down version of Christianity. There was no Trinity. There was just one God. So when you when you simplify it, maybe you, you simplified this too much. But anyways, Ibn Rushd could not resolve this contradiction. And so he said, basically, they're both right. And this created he's known in, uh, in Latin as Averroes. And what came about is Averroism, what Thomas Aquinas called Averroism or the doctrine of two truths, which is a violation of the principle of non-contradiction which is one of the fundamental principles of Logos. So they're not both right. Someone's right and someone's wrong. When you do this, you destroy reason, and that's precisely what Ibn Rushd did. The, the, the reasonable Muslims went into eclipse 
and they were replaced by the Muslims who said God does not have to be reasonable. They were called Asherites, but basically what they were saying was that God was pure will. And your job was simply to submit to the inscrutable will of God. Now, this is something like uh, what we read in the book of Job, which we're reading in Mass these days, which is basically God saying to Job, who do you think you are? Did you make the sun come up today? Can you can you do any of the things? Can any, any of these things? No. Well, then why are you questioning me? This is beyond your powers. OK, now that's not Christianity. But that is an attempt at something at trying to figure out things, trying to figure out the problem of evil, which we already talked about. And they, he, he just said, basically, well, God did it. You know, he restored everything. I, you know, it's not up to me to figure this out. God's ways are not man's ways. Well, Islam was in a, very, a much more exaggerated position because the Asherites said, basically, God is nothing but pure will. God can contradict himself. God can lie to you. Uh, and it's your job simply to submit. Islam means submission. And so as a result, Islamic philosophy went to sleep for a thousand years. And that the modern heirs of uh, this tradition would be people like ISIS, the the, uh, the Takfiri uh, in Syria and Iraq, who are being supported by the Wahhabis in uh, Saudi Arabia who have an extremely uh, fundamentalist or kind of Calvinist view of uh, their relationship between man and God. This changed, uh, I think, in 1979 when the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in Iran. At this point, you had a man, he introduced a new form of government in Iran. It was a revolution. It's probably the only revolution against the evil empire, against the United States, it has succeeded to this day, in spite of repeated attempts of the Americans to subvert what they were doing. And it succeeded not only at uh, uh, creating the Islamic Republic of Iran, it succeeded in resurrecting the tradition of Islamic philosophy. And it did this through the institution of what they call the Veliyat Ifaqi. The rule of the guardians and the Ayatollah Khomeini got this from Plato. So what you see now is Islam now linking up with the tradition that Ibn Rushd abandoned. And now you have the reawakening of Islamic philosophy, which is going on as we speak. Well, right. A, now. a portion of Islam. The Shia. Right. And the Iranians. And, and, and they are at war with the Wahhabis. And it's, it's a war over oil, over a pipeline, over control of countries. But it's also a, an ideological, religious and philosophical war between a group of Muslims who are open to reason and a group of Muslims who are not. That's uh, what it comes to. Uh, and and that, uh, that Shia um, alliance uh, would be... Uh, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, primarily, I guess, what, what's left of Iraq. There's portions of Iraq, I guess, would be that that's the main Shia yeah. alliance. Yeah. Uh, well, it, again, another example of the cunning of reason uh, is the, the United States invasion of Iraq uh, put the Shia in power in Iraq. And so what happened at this point was the formation of a basically the Shia crescent, which now surrounds 
Israel to the north. So you have Iran, you have the Shia in power in Iraq, you have the the uh, Shia sympathizers in uh, Syria, the Alawites are close to the, the Shia. And then in Lebanon, you have Hezbollah, which is a Shia operation, and Hezbollah uh, is supporting the Palestinians. Okay. So when uh, so you've done a pretty good job here. Uh, we've gotten in all the major religions, including the uh, the uh, the folks in India. So you've done a pretty good job. Uh, let's uh, let's I, let's get the last uh, the last group in there, which is what I'm a part of, which is uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and let's talk about Russia and the role they play and and the Orthodox Church, uh, particularly uh, start with um, Russia seems to have a history of living at peace with uh, the Islamic religion. They're a minority, but but uh, but there is an ability to do that, and they are obviously working with Muslims in uh, uh, Syria, and they have a right. good relationship with the Iranians. So talk about that piece yeah. of the puzzle. Um, well, I mean, if you're talking about uh, Russian Orthodoxy, you're talking about the great schism, the split with between the East Eastern Church and the Western Church. It was resolved at the Council of Florence, uh, theoretically, and then when the patriarchs went back, uh, the people rejected it. Uh, so it became, as a result, uh, Russia uh, pretty much set off on its own course. Russia has been isolated. Geographically, it has been isolated. Peter the Great uh, tried to uh, end this isolation when he came to Europe. He brought Europeans uh, back into Russia. Uh, the Germans, uh, my, actually my, my daughter-in-law's uh, grandmother was a Volga Deutsch. Uh, so it, even to this day, there is an influence, this German influence uh, in Russia. Uh, the, big, the big crisis in Russia, of course, was caused by the Jews. Uh, this uh, Solzhenitsyn covers this in his book, uh, 200 Years Together. Basically, when Poland was partitioned, all of the Jews that lived on the eastern side of Poland now lived on the western side of Russia uh, in a, a place called the Pale of the Settlement. And they were not happy with the czar at all. They were not happy. And they became revolutionary revolutionaries because that's what Jews are. They are revolutionaries. Um, all the way up through the 19th century, they killed the czar in 1880. The, 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 the Russians tried to bring this under control. And basically, when the Russians were at their weakest during World War II, uh, the Jewish cabal, Jewish-led cabal known as Bolshevism, took over the country. And we had 70 years of basically uh, Jewish hegemony in Russia. Now, obviously, that was modified by Stalin, who tried to keep the Jews, and I, I think success, successfully kept the Jews under control. But you're talking about that uh, basic uh, uh, distortion of Russian history that was concluded when communism fell. And basically, we then, the United States, were the Jews who fled the czar. They came here. They took over our country. Uh, and this was the, basically the neoconservative cabal that basically took over our foreign policy under the Bush administration and got us in war with the, in Iraq. So in uh, well, Russia, we in Russia, the United States and Russia share this common um, uh, patrimony or common uh, woe, if you want to call it that, because of, of the Jewish influence. Now that's over in Russia. Now it's clear that Russia is a Christian country. Uh, and 
it, that moment in the last uh, May Day parade, I believe it was, where the the head of the Russian military uh, passes by the cathedral and he makes, he's a Buddhist, okay, but he makes the orthodox sign of the cross. Well, this was an incredible moment for Russia because now Russia is a united country. Now uh, they've recovered from the Yeltsin era when basically they, they were they were looted. Yeltsin's job was to say, stay drunk and allow the Jews then known as oligarchs, to loot the country. That's over. And now Russia is back. And now it's up to the United States. At some, at some point, the grown-ups are going to have to step in and recognize this fact and say, we are at fault. We are the ones that are, are pushing the, the world to the brink of war in the Ukraine and Syria, and not the Russians. And it's time for us to get serious and pull back and mind our own business for a change. Uh, so... Uh is the root reason why Russia is has an alliance right now with Syria and Iran and working well with Muslims, unlike the West, possibly because they have possibly logos in common? Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is a, a worldwide convergence. And Russia and Iran, first of all, the whole point of American foreign policy is to divide the Eurasian landmass. They got that from Mackinder's uh, uh, thesis, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. They've done the exact opposite. This is again the cunning of reason. This is God working in history. So the Victorian Newlands of the, uh, at the State Department have brought about the very opposite of what they're supposed to do. They've united the Eurasian landmass and Iran, Russia, and now China are all working uh, together. And you're not gonna defeat them. You cannot defeat them. Ask Mr. McKinder, the island nations have to divide these people. Once they're united, you can't defeat them because you can't send the British Navy in or the American Navy in and blockade their ports and starve them to death, which is what England did to Germany after World War One. This was Winston Churchill's legacy in Germany. That's why the British Navy is Leviathan. Leviathan is the sea monster. The sea monster cannot starve the Eurasian landmass to get to death. It's too big. There are too many, too many. They can grow whatever they want. They have everything they need. You're, you're lost. And so what they what the um, what the British tried to do before World War One was keep Russia and Germany from uh, aligning together, play them off against each other. The United States foreign policy has failed miserably because they have united the Eurasian landmass. Once you do that, you have to run up the white flag and admit defeat. That's what we're going to have to do here. Syria, they're going to lose Syria. It's The only question is, how is this empire going to come down? Are, we going, are the grown-ups going to step in and we're going to have an orderly retreat? Or is it going to be some type of nuclear catastrophe? That's the question. All right. Uh, move it in a uh slightly different direction, but I want to just uh, get get a little slightly personal, but tell me what drives you personally in terms of being hopeful. Uh, you, uh, you know, you described yourself humorously as a uh, one-legged ass, uh, a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, but you're obviously uh, uh, dealing in a lot of, uh, you're taking on the massive propaganda, massive propaganda in Western right. world today. And uh, so I want to know what keeps you from being totally frustrated what what gives you hope and what kind of things are you seeing that give you the energy to, to keep moving on with your message? Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. And as Catholics, we believe that we have we call, talk about a vocation. 
which means calling, which means that God, um, God had a, has a plan for all of us from all eternity. And that plan is already over in God's mind. It's already complete. And his plan, the reason he brought me into existence was because he had a plan for me to do. I'm no different than anybody else. The, the, my plan is different, but the idea that God has a plan for your life, is that's part of Christianity. And that's what leads to the optimism of Christianity. As soon as you leave, as soon as Europe abandons Christianity, pessimism sets in. There's a, a, a determinism, a biological determinism, a materialism. It's all pessimism. And what you saw at the end of the 19th century was this complete pessimism. Now, I, I told you I was just in Tanzania and I entered uh, Tanzania. I entered Africa from the east uh, from, through Dar es Salaam. And what I realized when I got there is all the explorers entered through the east because you couldn't get there from the west. It was impenetrable because the Congo River was not navigable for about 200 miles, 32 falls and rapids, 900 feet drop. It was not navigable until the Belgians built a railroad about, around the, um, the cataracts. The man who got on the boat at Kinshasa where the water uh, becomes navigable now uh, a guy by the name of Joseph Conrad, who was a Pole, and he wrote a, a great piece of literature called The Heart of Darkness, which is about his journey up the Congo River. Now, why was it the heart of darkness? Well, because Europe was the the era, the land of the Enlightenment. Everything was light in Europe, except that Enlightenment at this point meant uh, basically uh, materialism and capitalism and all of these other isms that were the opposite of Christianity. So when when Marlowe gets to the Congo, Logos fails. That's what happens. Every place he looks, there's a failure of Logos. It's you know the the the, the, the it's not racial. It's metaphysical. There's no Logos in Africa, and there's no belief now that will compel him to say, yes, there is a Logos here if you look uh, at it lo uh, long enough. Because by that point, the educated European only believed in the truncated, distorted Logos known as the Enlightenment. So that's what I saw. You know, that's the failure of Logos. So I'm optimistic because I'm a Christian. And as I said, God is the Lord of history and it has to have a good ending. And even if I were to die, I mean, there were Christians who were martyrs, but even if they die... It doesn't mean that it's not going to be a happy ending. They have a happy ending for their lives. And in a sense, they brought about a happy ending for other people because the martyrs in Rome led to the rise of Christianity and the takeover of Roman Empire by the Christians. So that's why I'm optimistic. I've also heard you uh, talk uh, here and there, use the, the word consciousness, and you have a hope that the, uh, the consciousness in the West, in the world, will change. Uh, talk a little bit about that. It's changing right now. It's changing right now. We're seeing, as I mentioned uh, before, in 79, we saw twin rebellions against the materialism, uh, the Pope John Paul II rebelling against Soviet materialism, and the Ayatollah Khomeini rebelling against American consumerist, whatever, however you want to describe it, that kind of materialism. Those, those revolutions, uh, uh, kind of, th those two people didn't know each other. They didn't like each other when they came in contact with each other. The Pope wrote a letter to the Ayatollah asking him to, to negotiate the, the hostages, who were the American hostages. 
the Ayatollah wrote a kind of a snippy letter back to him telling him to mind his own business and what are you doing about the great Satan? And so they weren't friends at all. And what you're seeing here is not something that's of human design. It's God's design. Those two things happened completely independent of each other, and yet they were completely related to each other in a way that the human mind could not bind together. So it's our job, I think, to follow in those footsteps. And I hope that I can, we can pursue this with my Iranian friends. I'm hoping to get back there in December. We're going to have a conference, and we're going to talk about Logos, and we're going to talk about the new, new world order, which is basically on the firm metaphysical foundation of Logos. It's not American capitalism. It's not social engineering. It's not pie in the sky. It's bedrock reality. You know, the thing that the Indians were looking for with those turtles, that's what we're going to base our world, new world philosophy on. And this is, again, what Hegel would call the cunning of reason. This is not what the Americans intended, but this is what the Americans have brought about. So you actually have, you're, you're fairly optimistic. Yep. Um, that's right. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Uh, uh, people wouldn't necessarily guess that. Um but uh, uh, I can see it. Um, do, uh, real briefly, do you have a, a particular eschatological view? Or, you, or do you have a, a, a view that uh, all the nations of the earth are going to be evangelized? Uh, do you, are you, uh, quote-unquote, agnostic on that issue? No, I think Logos will triumph because that's our destiny. Logos is going to triumph. What else can no evil can no evil can impede the triumph of Logos, because no evil has the power of God, and God is Logos. Logos is God. Saint John said that. That's what we believe. I have to believe that as a Christian, and God's power cannot be stopped. He 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 can deal with human evil. He created human beings with free will, but his design, his power cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped, and that's why I'm optimistic. Amen. Well, I uh, I can't think of a better place to stop than that. So um, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, I uh, I didn't get a chance to plug your stuff yet. Uh, CultureWars.com. Go to CultureWars.com. All of my books are available there. Buy, They're buy, also buy Mike's books. Uh, they're fantastic. Uh, uh, can you subscribe to the magazine? Is that yes? Subscribe to Culture Wars. Keep up with what I'm doing on a monthly basis. Uh, this is a worldwide movement, and you can be part of it. Well, thank you again so much, and uh, I want to interview again uh, down the road. There's so much that we can talk about. This was a, uh, it was fun to do a big broad thing, and uh, and you didn't disappoint. So thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great night. Good to talk to you. Okay.